want to show you a couple of images. Um, the yeah, can we can we bring up that first one? So our family decided to go and um, th this is a this is a Christmas image, isn't it? It's a it's it's actually not our Christmas tree. It's it's one of the most extravagant ones I could find when I just did a image search. Um, but it's it's beautifully decorated and and it's a classic Christmas image. When we think of this time of year, we're we're often thinking of Christmas trees. Um, now I want to show you another image. So this. This is, uh, this is a scene that greets me every morning when I look out my study window across the street. It's, it's, a, it's a stump that I walk by um, every day when I go out to the car to take the boys to school. Uh, it used to be a beautiful tree, uh, but then over the past few years, we watched it slowly die. It started at the top. We noticed that the, the upper branches weren't leafing out, and then it just got worse and worse and became a great place for woodpeckers to, you can kind of see some of the woodpecker um, work down there at the bottom still. And then just like a month and a half ago, the city came and they chopped it down. Uh, it's a stump. It's a stump. It's not pretty. It's probably not the kind of thing that you would ever bring into your living room and uh, throw lights on. But I wonder which of those images you feel better fits our world right now. And I wonder which of those images you feel better fits your life right now. Well, you're stumping us with this question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not a trick question. <laughs> it's an invitation to reflect. Um, is it the glorious, glamorous tree? Or is it the dried up old stump? Our scripture is Isaiah chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place 
shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Advent uh, is a time filled with tension. On one hand, we're looking back to the ancient people of God who were waiting for the promised Messiah to come, and we are joyfully uh, remembering and celebrating the reality that the Messiah has come. And at the same time, the church has always understood the season of Advent to be a time of longing and a time of lament and a time of waiting when we're not only looking back and remembering Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, but we're also looking ahead and we're anticipating and longing for his second coming, his second Advent, uh, when he will finally fulfill his promise to make all things new. And so Advent locates us in this, um, this time between the times, in this tension between the already of God's kingdom, already in all kinds of ways, um, the king has come and we see his kingdom breaking in, but at the same time we're so aware that there are ways when the kingdom has not come. We still long for it to come. Reading the prophet Isaiah, it, it leads us to grapple with this tension because Isaiah, at least through Christian eyes, is not just talking about one coming of the Messiah, but he's talking about two comings of the Messiah. And we can actually see this in our passage. Look again. When Isaiah was a prophet, um, the people of God were not doing well. They were given over to all kinds of uh, idolatry and injustice. Their kings had led them astray. The people were turning away from God. And as a result, their life, their life together, had become stump-like. Which is to say no life at all. Uh, the situation for them looked absolutely hopeless. You know, all a stump can really expect is decomposition and decay. But now look again at verse 1. Isaiah declares, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So it's an impossible possibility. Uh, life out of death. A shoot will come forth. This beautiful branch that given the present stumpy reality... Uh, no one could have anticipated. He will come in like the most humble and surprising way, more like a flower blooming in a junkyard than you know, some beautiful palm tree growing in a palace. You remember the story when Jesus was born, he wasn't born to a queen in a place of beauty, but he was born to a teen mom in a stable. And how would he come to be recognized? Not by like his, his beautiful silk gowns or his royal crown or his riches or his fame. Isaiah says, here's what you look for. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Remember that when Jesus begins his ministry, he's baptized in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes and descends and rests upon him. And those who knew the scriptures well and who were there might have remembered Isaiah's prophecy. Well, verse 2 tells us that empowered by the Spirit, this one to come will have wisdom and understanding. And so, in other words, he'll be able to like um, really see to the real issues of the heart. And he'll be equipped with counsel and might. Like he'll have the ability to, to devise a right plan of action and then to actually see it through to fulfillment and completion. He'll have knowledge in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he'll... he'll grasp the truth about God and he'll orient his entire life around that truth in righteousness. Like he'll love God and he'll love people. 
All of this enables the one to come to bring the justice and the righteousness that the world desperately needs. We learn that he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, which is a way of saying that we, he won't have to rely on um, fallible witnesses and uh, imperfect evidence to know what is right. Um, he himself will have the ability and the knowledge to discern what is right and to bring a kind of perfect justice. We learn that he'll act upon the needy, act on behalf of the needy and the poor of the earth. We can remember Jesus saying in Luke's gospel, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, Jesus, remember, is the one who says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So this is a humble king who comes in the power of the spirit to set the earth free, to liberate the earth from its bondage to decay. And all of this, we can joyfully remember as we look back to Jesus' first advent, his first coming. When the world was without hope, when the world had become an old stump, Isaiah's vision came to pass. A new branch, a new shoot, life out of death, an impossible possibility. And I wonder, family, um, where do you need to hear the good news of this promise today? Like, where are the stumps in your life? Wounds, maybe, that you've been carrying for decades that just feel too deep to be healed. Relationships that have been fractured and you don't see how they could possibly be set right again, possibly be mended. Maybe patterns of behavior in your own life that you know lead to death, but you just don't see any hope for change. Can you hear God saying to you, um, out of the stump can grow a new shoot. Out, out of death can come can come life. From that place of desolation can come hope. Like from nothing, God can work something that can, in good time, change everything. This is a word for you and me, family. Our king has come. He's come into the world full of stumps, bringing with him the promise of new life, hope for the future. All of this we remember when we look back at Jesus' first coming. But there's more in our passage, isn't, isn't there? Um, there's a lot here that hasn't come to pass, that hasn't been fulfilled. Isaiah is holding up for us like this vision of perfect justice that leads to a perfect peace. Um, he gives us a vision of the whole world renewed and filled with the knowledge of God, but our experience is so different. It's so different. I mean, we say that God has come into the world, but we continue to live uh, in our own lives with all kinds of pain and suffering. Um, wars continue to rage. Injustice persists as a reality in our communities. I mean, people continue to go hungry, even though, in theory, we have enough food for everyone. Uh, children keep dying of treatable diseases, even though, in theory, like, we could take care of that. The list could go on and on, but we just live in this tension between the way things are and the way things ought to be. We look around, we long to see, like, this verdant forest, but instead, we see a bunch of stumps. See, the king has come, but his work isn't finished. 
And so Isaiah doesn't only speak of Jesus' first advent, he also looks to his second. Verse 4 speaks about the rule of the Messiah when he sets all things right, bringing perfect justice and an end to evil. And listen again, we read that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And I wonder how that sounds to you. Is that good news or is that bad news? Well, consider how it, how it might sound to like a 12-year-old girl who was kidnapped when she was 10 and enslaved inside a brothel. I mean, consider what it would sound like for her to hear that her king is coming and, and when he comes, he will bring a perfect justice, wiping out the wicked. I mean, that is very, very good news. N.T. Wright puts it like this. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. And, and this is the promise that Isaiah holds up for us. Um, the same one who has come will come again, and he will make things right. He will make things right. Look at the promised result of his perfect judgment. Not only will there be justice for the poor and oppressed, not only will evil be decisively dealt with, but Isaiah says, like, the whole earth, the whole earth will be renewed. Verses 6 through 9 are just incredible. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. I mean, notice the extremes. What's Isaiah doing? Like, wolf and lamb, leopard, young goat, lion, calf. These are all predators and prey, right? Uh, if you try to pull this off today, one of the animals leaves very happy and well-fed, and the other animal doesn't leave at all. Um, these are juxtapositions of, like, emblems of hostility in our world. When Jesus comes again, he will put an end to that hostility. He'll bring reconcil reconciliation everywhere that there is now currently brokenness and division. But this is more than a metaphor, I think. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he points out that these revised relationships among the animals suggest, like, a, um, a radical renewing and healing of the whole created order. Um, when a wolf and a lamb can dwell together in peace, it's like something new is happening, right? Like that, that's a sign that there's something with nature itself that is different, that has been transformed and changed. When a lion can lie down with a fattened calf and not see it as a meal, but just exist with it in harmony, something new is happening. It also harkens back to the story of Eden when animals and humans lived in harmony and peace with God and with each other. But the point is that the frustration and agony that creation itself is, is bound to now will be healed. It's like when human injustice is dealt with, creation begins to live into the shalom for which it was intended. Um, this deep, comprehensive peace. Look at verse 8. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Um, what does that make you think of? Um, attentive readers of scripture who are familiar with the overall story of the Bible, like pretty much any time an author brings a snake to mind, you should go back to Genesis 3 at least and start there. Um, like, you remember that the woman was told that a snake will uh, strike at her offspring's heel. And here, Isaiah sees a day when the serpent will no longer harm, when the curse, it's like the curse will be lifted from the earth and creation and everything, and it will be redeemed. And so this is just like this extraordinarily comprehensive and vast, deep and wide hope that Isaiah holds out for us. Um, In light of passages like this one, uh, chances are that your hope and my hope is, is often far too small. I mean, we hope for little tiny things. Isaiah is holding out hope for the renewal of the entire universe. Like, the reconciliation of all things. William Temple said this. He said, Christianity is the most materialistic of all the religions. We tend to think of materialism as a bad thing, especially this time of year, right, when everyone's obsessed with going shopping and and finding the right presents. But if you think of materialism in a more philosophical sense of, like, thinking that matter matters, uh, Christianity is the most materialistic of all the religions. What he meant is that Christians hope for a renewed creation when the world itself will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's how Isaiah puts it. Um, a, uh, a writer, thinker, theologian, Vinath Ramachandra, he puts it like this. He says, um, this is a long quote. He says, the story of Jesus subverts the stories of salvation that we find in the other religions. All these other stories offer us freedom from the shackles of our humanness. The way to ultimate transcendence lies in breaking free from our individuality, physical embodiment and entanglements in this meaningless world of historical existence, the ordinary everyday world of work and home. Our humanness gets in the way of union with the divine, but the Bible speaks of a God who is entangled with our world, who immerses himself in our tragic history, who embraces our humanity with all its vulnerability, pain, and confusion, including our evil and our death. In identifying with us in our humanity, he draws the human into his own divine life. What this means is that the closer we get to God, the more human we become, not less. And our created physical bodies have a future. In raising Jesus from the dead, the creator was affirming our humanity. This historical embodied existence has a future. So our salvation lies not in escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. Everything good and true and beautiful in history is not lost forever, but will be restored and directed to the worship of God. You will not find hope for the world in any religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. It's unique. And that's why we sing songs like Joy to the World, we, and we say that when the Lord comes... It is actually joy to the world uh, that God comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found, that every single way creation is marred by sin now, every single one of those ways will be redeemed by the one to come. The king has come and the king will come again and he will heal all of it. 
In the meantime, we watch and we wait. We look around at all the stumps and sometimes we cry out like, how long, O Lord? We lament. We wait in this tension between the already and the not yet, between his first advent and second advent. But remember, family, this is not a passive waiting. It's an active, hopeful waiting. As, as the people of God, we don't just sit around with our hands in our pockets hoping that uh, maybe, maybe things will get better one day. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after an amazing description of Jesus' second coming, his second advent, when he comes again and raises our dead bodies just as his own body has been raised, the Apostle Paul says this, in light of that future, in light of the reality of our future resurrection, he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. He says, in light of what's coming, you don't sit back and twiddle your thumbs, sitting around waiting for maybe things to get better. In light of what's coming, you give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So it's like we get this vision of the world to come, and then we get a calling to go to work. Um, it's like our lives and our work are meant to be a, like a preview to the watching world of what it will look like when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Um, it's like our lives and our work are meant to be a little appetizer of this great meal that awaits us when Jesus returns to make all things new. So there's work to do. Your work matters. That's one of the reasons that we're wanting to hear from different ones of us week after week about the work that we do. Because this, this is, these are little faithful ways of anticipating our future reality when Jesus makes all things new. As we look toward this table, I invite you to call to mind the stumps in your life and the stumps in our world, uh, the places where we want to see new life, where we long and yearn for it, but also maybe the places where new life just seems entirely impossible. Isaiah sees a stump, but he also sees a new shoot. And he sees a branch. He sees this impossible possibility of life from death. Um, in verse 2, we saw that empowered by the Spirit, Jesus had wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. Like He had everything needed to see what a world full of stumps really needs. And he had the ability to devise a plan, a right course of action, and to see it through. And what does Jesus do? You see this as you read through any of the Gospels, that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And he goes there, and there, you remember, he's judged. And he's condemned. And he's killed on a cross. Uh, this one who has perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom, and who knows better than any of us what a world full of stump needs, he deals with injustice by taking it onto himself and by taking it into himself, and by willfully going to the darkest depths of our hopelessness. 
And so we see Jesus get cut down. And we see Jesus become a stump. And then three days later, a new shoot, a branch, an impossible possibility, resurrection from the dead. Isaiah gives us one more image. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. See, it turns out that the one who comes from the stump of Jesse, the branch, is also the one who gives life to the stump, the root. You can think of Jesus saying crazy things like, before Abraham was, I am. Like, when we deal with Jesus, we're dealing with a human being, and we're also dealing with the one in whom all things hold together. And that's just a mystery that we get to revel in. But this is the one who gives life to the world. And so Jesus is the stump, maybe. He's the, he's the branch, but he's also the root. And there's an invitation here, family, especially in this season of Advent, to rest in him, to trust him, to abide in him, to see that he is our life. And therefore, to see the stump, to see all the stumps in your life and in our world and to see that they are temporary. They are temporary. I mean, when Jesus is your root, your stumps are always temporary. It's kind of ironic that um, Christmas trees look so beautiful and stumps not so much, but one at least has the possibility of a future. If you chop down a crepe myrtle, I guarantee you it's going to grow back. I guarantee you that the Christmas tree in your living room will not grow back. And, and the reason has to do with its roots. A stump has roots. When Jesus is your root, your stump is always temporary. Uh, it's not the final wor world. And we might not see how. We might not, we might not see how. Um, we might have to wait way longer than we thought we were going to have to wait. Um, but, but the promise is that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And so, family, believe the gospel. In Jesus' name.